0: ignition sequence starts and it's getting close six five four three ignition two, ignition we one, have flame and six, a great deal of smoke coming out of the bottom of that rocket 8.9 lift seconds of the hole still now it's moving it is coming toward the top of the tower now flame belching out all around it now the deluge system is trying to cool it down millions of gallons of water pouring out of it here comes the
1: sound <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Unfrozen. I am Dan Safarik,
0: And I'm Greg Lindsay, and space is the place. On today's episode, we're delighted to have a pair, not of architects, our usual fare, but of a pair of veteran space writers. We're joined today by Brian Harvey uh, and Gurbir Singh, who together are the author and co-author of The Atlas of Rocket Launch Sites, which is a comprehensive look uh, of basically all the places on the planet where we have propelled spacecraft into the vacuum of space which is of course a fascinating subject indeed as someone who's written a lot about sort of the air land interface to contemplate today the sites where we conducted the space race um many of our listeners will of course be familiar with Cape canaveral i'm sure we'll talk about some of the largest structures that have ever been built there but these gentlemen have documented i think more than two dozen sites around the planet ranging from the obscure to the hidden to the secret Uh, Across climates, but the construction of these gigantic infrastructures to yeah enable us to travel into space and propel objects there, and uh, yeah, we're very excited to have them both because uh, neither of them are architects. They are both veteran space writers. Brian has been writing about space. He was telling us beforehand, since he was a child in the in in the nineteen sixties and seventies, he's written for multiple magazines and multiple books. And Gabir Singh has also written several books uh, about the Indian space program, uh, Yuri Gagarin, and others. And so it's great to have you both on today, gentlemen. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I guess my first question has to be then, as space writers, what made you interested in the subject of the launch sites themselves, and how did you approach it? I'm curious, from an outsider's perspective, your interest in the infrastructures that make your passion of spaceflight possible.
2: The idea for such a book actually came from um, Dome, which is the publisher in Berlin, Paul Meuser. Uh, it was his idea. We can't take the credit for, uh, for the idea. Um, but he, Dome is a very, in my view, imaginative publisher that covers architecture from many, many different dimensions. Uh, and this was an area of space writing that I think uh, had been uh, not given very much attention up to now. Uh, one of the big problems we faced at the very beginning was which launch sites and you've already Greg touched on that issue, that they cover such a very wide range from the well-known to the obscure. Um, There are essentially about 30 or so active launch sites on this planet but we also wanted to cover some of the historical ones, uh, which, are, which uh, are, are no longer in use because they are so very important. Uh, and yet there are many, many commercial ones coming down the tracks in many other uh, countries, uh, which we were not essentially able to include, but from which some of which you're going to hear a lot more from in the future, but others may, by contrast, sink into obscurity.
3: And if I can just add, um, um, although my name is on the cover, my contribution was really minimal. So, um, and the other two people whose name are, are also um, very important in this, uh, uh, this, as you said earlier, quite a big and heavy book, uh, are Paul Mauser, the editor. He came up with the original idea for the book. Um, and it, when he came up with the idea, it's one of those ideas I thought, hmm, How come we've never heard of it before? Nobody else you tackle that subject. And, of course, timing-wise, you know, we've seen the increasing in recent years uh, of the development of spaceports around the world, so it's quite timely. So in addition to Paul, there was uh, somebody else, a lady called Katrin Shosensky, and she's the professional cartographer and responsible for really some of the sublime mapping that you see in the book, which really makes it uh, something quite unique. So uh, my contribution, I wrote about the two sites in India, well three sites now, the third one is still underway, and we'll talk about some of those sites, but my contribution, minimal.
0: Well, thank you for your, your humility. Pierre. I, I think it's uh, perhaps overstated there, but I, I do want to delve into this. Um, I guess as a sort of opening point into this. Are there, what are the commonalities? What are the structures? Are there typologies of spaceports? Um, obviously, as you mentioned, you know there's classic sites, forgotten sites, the commercial spaceports that you mentioned, Virgin and others have, have commissioned these with Starchitects. But I'm curious if you could, how do you sort of break it down in the book and how do we think about this as, yeah, as a form of architecture and infrastructure and what are some of the notable aspects? I'm curious if you each have a favorite launch site. I think our listeners are probably familiar with Canaveral. It's a building that does not have its own weather system, as we like to say, but like the largest vehicle on Earth, which carries the craft of the shuttles. Do those exist elsewhere? Uh, you know, what is a minimum viable spaceport?
2: I think the, there are essentially two main types of launch site: those that are by the sea and those that are in inland desert. Uh, The original first launch site of a modern uh, rocket was Peenemünde in Germany along the Baltic Sea. And very basically, if you're going to be firing off very dangerous devices like rockets, you hope that they will fall harmlessly. Uh, And into the sea. And that is the logic behind uh, the original German base in Peenemunde, uh, also Cape Canaveral, Wallops Island, Virginia, Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, Kourou in French Guiana, uh, San Marco off the Kenyan coast, and so on and so forth. There was a second type of base, which is inland desert, and that is largely governed by security considerations if you're wanting to build a launch base and you don't know, you don't want other countries to find out about it. And that was the logic behind Russia building the Volgograd station, uh, Baikonur in Kazakhstan, China building Zhukuan, well inside uh, the northwest of China. This didn't do them any good. Uh, because um the American U two spy planes, which uh you'll remember from the nineteen sixties, uh f- Found these launch sites quite quickly. Uh, one of the features of these launch sites was that they were railway based. So, if you followed the railways or railroads, as you call them, for long enough, you will find a launch base. And also, they tend to build a lot of perimeter walls, uh, which gave you additional clues to their locations. So, as a strategy, this was never very successful. But inland desert launch sites. Did have the advantage that if rockets fell uh, on um, in the adjacent areas, like say Hamaguer in Algeria, Woomera in Australia and so on and so forth, they would do the least damage. but I would make the point that a lot of these areas were declared to be uninhabited, and the Aboriginal people who lived in many of these locations probably took a different idea, a different view of that.
1: One of the things I wanted to be sure to ask about was um, it's clearly well documented that you know Cape Canaveral, the Kennedy Space Center, is a major tourist center, uh, you know in uh, in Florida, in the United States. Uh, people come from all over the world to watch launches. Um, <clears throat> I could find only one other example that seemed to be currently accessible to the public, which was the decommissioned German V two launching site at Pinamunda. Uh, do you know if that is the site that was the inspiration for the uh, the rocket launching stories in Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pinchon? He also talked about the underground facility that is also, I understand, a tourist site. Uh, Peinemunde was a very basic site. In in a sense, it was simply
2: a a concrete slab uh, set amidst forest. Um, But many of the adjacent facilities, like, for example, uh, fueling facilities, uh, downrange tracking and so on, they became part of the worldwide launch architecture everywhere else. Interestingly, some of the new smaller commercial launch companies which have generally quite small rockets compared to the enormous, say, Saturn V and Cape Canaveral, they are returning to the simplicity of peenemunde type bases because they want to keep costs down and they do not want to pay for more elaborate than necessary facilities. Um, in terms of accessing the, the issue of tourism, which I think is a very valid and important question, we, we didn't get into peenemunde during the period of the German Democratic Republic. It was only after German unification that visits have been possible. Cape Canaveral is the most visited Launch site in the world, and it very quickly adapted to the phenomenal level of public interest uh, in launch sites at that time. Other launch sites, some of them are completely closed, some of them you just can't get into at all, Um, and others do not encourage um, tourism an awful lot. Essentially, the people who run them say we're here for the rocket business, we're not here for the tourism business. The one place that I think will rival Cape Canaveral is Wenchang in the, high, the island of Hainan, because that is a tourist island uh, in, in, off the south coast of China. It has a similar profile of population. It is a retirement home for older and sometimes more affluent Chinese, but it is making quite an effort to uh, actually attract tourists in there. Uh, but still, most, most launch sites around the world are visitable in some shape or form, or through specialised tours, or things like that, or if you're involved in having a satellite launch from them. For example, um, Westerners have got into uh, Kapustin Yar in Volgograd, or Plisetsk uh, in uh, northern Russia, and so on and so forth. Uh, so some people have got there. There are very few launch sites to which uh, no outsiders have ever got the best example is probably the launch site in the dprk democratic people's republic of korea or north korea uh, pal the israeli base that's uh, also a military base the only people that i know who've got in there are hollywood stars who have connections with israel um, but otherwise it's a fairly closely guarded base you can probably understand why uh, over time, we may see that more launch spaces may become more open. And if our book contributes to that, we'd be delighted.
3: And if I can add, the, um, one of the um, resources that opened up in the Indian Space program's uh, facilities at Siri Harikota, which is the primary launch site, uh, all the orbital launches ever undertaken by India have taken place from Siri Harikota. Just before the lockdown started uh, the um, ISRO the Indian Space uh, Research Organisation opened up what they call their Visitor Centre and it's a vast, just an open air f- uh, field um, but designed to allow many Indians who've expressed an Indian interest in viewing these launches um, so th- the first phase was opened about three years ago and it it's uh, going to be developed further with uh, even a larger capacity. Um, I've been to Siri Harbour about three times now, and they have a um, press office, a visitor centre, a building. And from that building, <laughs> despite the fact that it's a visitor centre, you can't actually see the launch pad. So if you go to see a launch, you have to sit there looking at some trees, and then after the, a few seconds after launch, you see the rocket actually above the tree line. Um, so there is. Um, a great uh, deal of um, interest for public, and I expect this, as Brian was saying, some, some launch the, sites in are the, indeed are extraordinarily scenic,
2: I think particularly of the two Japanese sites, Tanegashima and Uchinura. They're on these rocky coastlines, uh, which is a, another particular feature of launch sites. You can go there, but and there are visitor centres there, um, but I, I am surprised that they're not advertised more abroad. Um, by way of a, a new launch site, Mahia, on the uh, coast of uh, New Zealand, which is a new and very successful launch site, for um, one of the new uh, companies, Rocket Lab. Um, the local authority has, I think, wisely muscled in on that and encouraged people to watch from a safe distance and the uh, tourism brochure says, say, bring a picnic
1: while you're at it. I would think that uh, Vandenberg in California would be a pretty good candidate. Uh, at, at present, the only way that you can see it at ground level is to ride the train through it, which is only once a day. But I've done that several times um, and it's, it's quite beautiful and it's very sprawling. Uh, but I would think that um, the visibility of the rocket sites and its relative proximity to both San Francisco and Los Angeles would mean that there would be a burgeoning tourist uh, business there. But apparently there isn't. Vandenberg is essentially a military
2: base, um, and it's used by the U.S. Air Force, which uh, does uh, extensive launches from there. Um, And I think they may be worried about people seeing what have they got on the pad and what does that look like underneath at the very top of that rocket that's getting ready. On the other hand, SpaceX um, is using it for ordinary commercial launches now, and that may encourage some more visitors. It is known that some people go out on the hills in Los Angeles to uh, look south to, uh, if I'm going the right direction, um, sorry, north, excuse me, excuse me, uh, to see in the hope of seeing ascending rockets that happens along the coast of Israel as well. But you need to know when they're going. Uh, You can get in, as I understand it, to a small visitor centre. But I would have to say that tourists, you could not say that they're encouraged Very much there. Um, But hopefully and and the reason for that is because it's essentially a military base owned by the military and they probably take their view that they're not in the tourism business. So the explanation is a rather banal one rather than a rather than a sinister one. But if I were in the tourism business there, I would I would encourage some development there.
0: Well, speaking of commercial aspect of space, I would love to dwell upon Vandenberg for a moment because I've actually had an opportunity to write about it. Um, Vandenberg is sort of seen as an essential, you know, economic development component of the central coast of California. The governor Newsom is going to keep open the nuclear reactor. I forget the name of it there. That is a major job site. But there was some planning done to think about how they could embrace the space economy and the private operators operating at Vandenberg Space Force Base. I should note they've changed the signs. It's very fun. But yeah, if you could talk a bit about that, gentlemen, Uh, because I think Vandenberg is interesting. I think most people don't know that actually there's more launches at Vandenberg than at Canaveral, if that's still true. And um, and yeah, what are the typologies of private space versus that public space? So you mentioned this, that they want to go back to more stripped down facilities. I'm curious if you could talk a bit about this sort of what I hear sometimes referred to as new space, you know, that moving beyond the state. Um, are there notable differences in terms of facilities, architecture? I mean, is it, is it more bare bones than classic 60s modernism at Canaveral? Or what does it look like to see the hybrid of the military facilities and then the new commercial areas that they're putting in within the footprint of the base?
2: You're right on both those points. Uh, A lot of the new sites are much more bare bones as you describe them because the rockets are smaller and they want to keep their costs down. But look at another place, which is Wallops Island, Virginia, which almost closed at one stage. Um, But the local authority, the state authority and local interests have worked hard to try get uh, companies back there like Northrop Grumman. They've been successful with that and it has effectively reopened um, as a launch base um, so that um, you you do see these hybrid models, uh, as you're suggesting there. You're exactly right. The biggest private commercial launch base being in construction at this very moment is Wenchang. On Hainan again, uh, you have, if you like to call it that, the state launch base, which has uh, is the home to the very large Long March five, Long March eight, Long March seven and seven A, and so on. But from last year, construction has begun there of uh, four uh, new launch pads for commercial Chinese launchers, private launchers, um, and that is taking place as things do in China at a very very rapid. Pace at the moment, and Chinese companies are also involved in building a seven-pad launch site in Djibouti, uh, in eastern Africa. Uh, so these are some of the uh, growth areas. Uh, plus, you also have companies that are trying to launch um, small satellites from um, aircraft, uh, which goes back many, many years to uh, Pegasus and the Lockheed Telile. 10-11 in the United States way back. And that gives you an additional flexibility because all you need is a is a very long aircraft, airport type runway to do that. So I think when you're looking at the what's called new space, you're looking at many, many different models and we will hear a lot more about this in the future.
3: One of the things I was um, uh, impressed to learn from your piece on Vandenberg, Brian, was that enormous um, investment that took place there uh, during the uh, late 70s and early 80s. After the Space Shuttle had started, the idea was to make use of the Space Shuttle in a much more commercial setting and have um, astronauts uh, using the Space Shuttle from around the world on a commercial basis. And to facilitate that, uh, in addition to uh, Cape Canaveral, the Vandenberg site was used, um, was designed to have launch facilities for the space shuttle as well as the mating, demating facility. If you recall the early days of space shuttle, it was transported from one part of the country to another on the back of a 747. That whole infrastructure was required and the intention was that um, uh, Vandenberg would be used as part of that facility. Following the Challenger uh, accident in 1986, all of that went out the window. So it's really surprising to think about that huge investment um, that was there, but came to nothing in the end.
2: But you also make another good point there, Greg, which is I think our perception of the busiest launch spaces is not necessarily the reality, um, because the busiest US base is Vandenberg as you've just pointed out, but that's not probably the popular perception. Ditto in Russia, the busiest base there is not. Um, Baikonur which is the best known, but Plisetsk uh, in northern Russia near Murmansk, because it is is essentially the the military base. Um, So that the actuality and popular perceptions can be a bit different here.
1: So at the beginning of this uh, broadcast we both Established that the two of you are, are not architects, but I think you're uh, underselling your appreciation for design, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the apparatus for launching the rockets themselves. Um, I mean, the rockets, uh, in and of themselves are, 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 I'm sure things of beauty for those who really understand them, and they're made to be you know streamlined and, and cut through space. But, um, you know, the, the, the actual infrastructure that supports them prior to launch, it does differ from place to place. Uh, there was a beautiful word that was used to describe the apparatus that falls away like petals from the Soviet rockets, and now I cannot remember what it is. Uh, maybe you can... Tulipan. Tulip. Exactly, because it looks like a tulip. Exactly. Yes. Um, yeah, and that's a, just a really striking image. Do, do you have... Favorites from a technical standpoint and from a from a aesthetic standpoint, um, you know, what's what's the sort of uh, form versus function story there with the launching apparatus?
2: Okay, I think there are two ways of looking looking at this uh, from an architectural point of view. One is, if you are building a launch site, you have to make a decision: is is it going to be road based? Or is it going to be rail-based? Because that will affect the way you do things. Um, The Russian system, which was the first one into orbit, was totally a rail-based system. Um, The American system, although rail is used and though cargo ships are used offshore, um, is much more a land transport based system. So that's the first um, decision you need to make. Are you going to be rail based or road based? And some launch sites are, are a combination of the two. The next decision you need to make is are you going to in effect have horizontal assembly or vertical assembly? Uh, because if it's horizontal assembly, you can have quite long, flat uh, assembly areas. And the assembly building is one of the uh, critical uh, areas of uh, any kind of launch site. Uh, go, go to Baikonur or nowadays Vostochny, and you see these very substantial, almost aircraft hangar-like long structures in which rockets are put together on their side and then brought down to the pad. Uh, by contrast, and I think that the best and most well-known example is the Vehicle Assembly Building at Cape Canaveral, which is a unique building in the entire world. And that is based on the notion of vertical assembly. Um, and it's set a lot of standards for, for size and I would imagine uh, architectural aesthetics as well. Um, And one of the reasons we know that this is such a model is that the two Chinese bases uh, in Zhukuan and Wenchang are, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're imitative, uh, but they follow the same idea of vertical vehicle assembly. The uh, Russian system that they use for their Soyuz rocket is, I think, rather exceptional. Um, there are essentially four of these Chulapan type launch sets of launch sites. Uh, one is Baikonur, the other is Plisetsk, um, but there is also uh, Kourou in French Guiana, although because of the war in Ukraine, that's not used anymore, and also in Vostochny. And these are enormous construction projects. Essentially, you are digging a huge hole in the ground to be the flame trench uh, for the rocket uh, so that the flames have somewhere to go. And the rocket then sits on a set of stilts on pillars. It's brought down to the site in this very elaborate lattice steel framework which grips it and grabs it and provides access at all levels and also there's a lift up to the very top uh, where the cosmonauts can board. Uh, It's quite a spectacular sight to see. But the most remarkable thing is that for all its sophistication, and there are very complex sets of interlocking uh, steel clasps and devices to be able to inspect the rocket from underneath, it takes off in this way. When the amount of thrust exceeds the weight of the clasps holding it back, the clasps swing back like that and let it go. And it's just pure gravity. It, It is the most simple And at the same time, complex systems ever devised. And no one has built anything quite like the uh, tulipan. It's it's a huge construction project. And indeed, when the Soyuz pad was being built uh, in French Guiana in the early years of this century, it was the biggest construction project on this entire planet at the time. And in an interesting uh, tribute to uh, European health and safety, there was only one broken leg, and no fatalities in the course of construction. And the actual construction was carried out by a company that specialised in building
3: children's playgrounds. And the, the development of the um, infrastructure for space launch sites in India uh, was pretty much um, the um, folk, uh, developed on the basis of what was happening in Russia, and most of the. Um, um, new states that came into space in those days of the Cold War, um, India played a really um, interesting game with both the America on the West and the Russians on the um, in the communist world, and because both sides were interested in pulling India into their political spheres of influence, uh, India Indian politicians. Played very smart cards and made sure they got benefits from both sides, and but primarily in the early days it was Russia. The very first Indian to go into space was um, on, on a Soyuz, thanks to the Russian um, option of um, yeah, we'll fly him, no no charge at all. The very first Indian satellite that went into Earth uh, Earth orbit was also launched by the Russians, um, so. The relationships were much stronger. The um, infrastructure or the design of the infrastructure for launch facilities was very much Russian in those early days as well.
2: The the model that you see of the um, uh, vehicle assembly building, you will also see in smaller form uh, where these tall structures are built to encase rockets. And here, climate is a factor. Uh, one of the issues in French Guiana, for example, is it's a very, very humid climate, and that will rot uh, the outside of rockets unless you encase them uh, fairly carefully. You also see that kind of structure in a site we haven't yet mentioned, which is the Imam Khomeini launch site, which is in Semnan, way in the high desert uh, of, uh, of Iran, uh, and there you have a similar uh, tall site, and you have um, the I- images of Iran on the outside of the site, so it's, it's, it can be used for a certain level of logos and advertising at the same time. Uh, but climate is an important factor, because launch sites tend to be coastal and sometimes humid, or inland Uh, where they can be very hot in summer, but also astonishingly cold in winter. Um, And launch sites operate under different conditions. You've probably seen uh, the way in which, um, for example, launches can from time to time get postponed. Um, in uh, Cape Canaveral, because of weather, uh, postponements in the Russian space program because of weather are virtually unheard of uh, because they designed the launch sites so that they can go from the plus forty degrees centigrade in in summer. They generally say they won 't launch less than minus forty degrees in winter, uh, but it 's rather interesting, like the specifications for um, satellites travelling by train on the long land journey uh, from Moscow to Baikonur uh, were such that one engineer once said, ''Why do you have such specifications? Conditions in outer space are not that harsh.'' And they said these specifications are designed for the railway journey to get to the launch site. Um, so, again, one of the challenges of launching rockets is to, have, is to be able to have safe sites um, that can launch in all kinds of extraordinary and challenging weathers that vary in temperature, in storms, um, and so on and
3: so forth. And if I can add one other factor that determines the um, characteristics of a launch site is the type of orbit that the spacecraft are going to be launched yes. to. Now, there loads of different types of orbits, but if I just focus on two, the polar orbit, going from pole to pole, vertically if you like, um, they're used for uh, Earth observation and remote sensing, or um, equatorial orbits, or 24-hour orbits sometimes, um, they're used for communication. And if you want to go um, into, uh, for example, with Vandenberg. Because you can't um, launch northwards, um, you have to launch south, pretty much equatorial orbits or some interplanetary lo- uh, launches have also taken pra- place from there. If you want to launch to um, an equatorial orbit, you really have to go to an eastern uh, coastline, hence Cape Canaveral. That, in addition to taking advantage of the Earth's rotation, which is the other reason why closer to the equator the launch site is, the more beneficial and fuel-efficient it is. And that was um, one of the other interesting things that I picked up from, again, one of Brian's uh, um, pieces. It was about the uh, Palmachin launch site in Israel. All launch sites um, usually go towards the um, east, but Palmachin can't because it has... Uh, countries which uh, let's say are are hostile (laughs) considered as hostile in addition to the safety uh, issue if uh, during a space launch the launch is not successful and your spacecraft ends up in another country you've got to be very careful with uh, uh, loss of perhaps intellectual uh, information which could be militarily sensitive but um, Israel is the only, launch, only country that launches against the gravity and it launches west. And that's one of the, another example of many of the interesting things that came out of this book for me as well.
2: I think this is an important point because it means that equatorial launch sites are very much prized. Um, when in the 1960s the Italians were trying to get into orbit, um, Italy is quite a bit uh, far north of the equator. Uh, so they managed to make an arrangement with the uh, people of Kenya uh, and they built, or, or rather they converted an oil rig and a set of platforms so that they could have a base called the San Marco base just off the east coast of Kenya, so that they were able to get absolutely 100% benefit from being in the in in, in, in the equator, though that was really essentially to get the satellite into, into the right orbit for radiation studies. For Europe, though, uh, Europe's original launch site was a French site in Algeria, but for political reasons that was no longer uh, possible. So the chosen launch site was Kourou, French Guiana, on the equator. Similarly, just up the coast from that is a launch site which unhappily has not yet seen a successful orbital launch and Cantara in Brazil. And uh, that likewise has the benefit of an almost uh, equatorial position. Um, In the early years of this century, there was Project Sea Launch, which was a venture uh, between uh, Russia and American companies, again to convert uh, oil platforms and rigs, uh, one of which was made in Scotland for example tow it to the middle of the pacific uh, and use both one as a launch platform the other as a command and control platform uh, to be able to launch into orbit and that project was uh, successful for many years Um, it's not functioning at the moment because the rocket they use the zenith is no longer used but that was a good example of how you can deal with the issue of launch site geography. The Chinese have since followed that model uh, by building what's called the Long March 11 SL, SL is sea launch, Um, and it can be quite economical compared to building fixed structures to convert substantial um, seaborne structures as launch sites and move them offshore when you need to go into orbit, and that, that may be a trend of which we may see more.
0: So I I wouldn't look ahead or perhaps maybe not look ahead, given the recent news that Virgin Orbit is effectively laying off 85 percent of their staff and and ceasing operations. But uh, more than a decade ago, Spaceport America opened in New Mexico and has launched humans into space, I guess, becoming the third state. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on that wave of potential space tourism. That seems like an idea whose time may have come and gone already again, but... You know, uh, tying back into some of our conversations about tourism and watching launches, how do we expect these sites might evolve? You mentioned, we've talked already about how they are smaller, more bare bones uh, because of private operators, but yeah, well, they start to perhaps add other functions of lodges, of hotels. I once had a conversation with Esther Dyson about this, a space pioneer, of course. And she pointed out to me that it's easier for wealthy people to go to space than climb Everest because there's no month at base camp required. Like if you're a time poor billionaire, space and cosmonaut wings is in fact a very good use of your... uh, your tourism dollars so I, i'm curious if there's any interesting evolutions and in where that goes um whether it's the chinese site in hainan or or the spaceport or something else is as, as you know perhaps these become more boring less ter- you know more terrestrial i guess i should say
2: H- hainan is probably your best example because there are a lot of hotels round about there uh and if you see the launches that go from there um uh, what, what tends to happen is people who know the launch dates and they are adna- announced well enough in advance, uh, will book into the will book into the hotels, climb up on the balconies, climb up on the roofs, and you will also see large crowds gathering all along the seashores and so on. So there is there is immense popular enthusiasm and interest in this in doing this kind of thing in all countries. I think uh, most of the countries that have organised. Uh, space missions have been very much taken aback by the level of, of popular interest and so on. They shouldn't be because, after all, uh, no less than a million people travelled to, I'm coming back to Cape Canaveral now, to watch the uh, uh, the, moon, uh, the moon launch on, of Apollo 11 in 1969. Uh, but that was never organised in the sense that the hotels that sprung up around Cocoa Beach and all around there were, were very much... Following the launch sites or whatever but Hainan would seem to have the most conscious approach to actually trying to make it a, a tourist destination but I'm sure there will be others as well
3: I think the um, um, launch um, uh, the issue with Virgin uh, Galactic is um, uh, it's a bit surprising um, but it, I, I think it's more of a hiccup I remember when Yuri Gagarin came here to Manchester. Uh, he was speaking here in Manchester about going to Mars and Venus. It was dead serious. Of course, the way things panned out wasn't quite like that. And So it's quite uh, realistic to think that in a few years' time, things will evolve. And I think one of the ways it will evolve is that there will be many more spaceports. And this idea of um, point-to-point rocket travel in the same way that we travel from uh, an airport to another airport. The idea of point-to-point rocket travel has been around for a long time. But I think, as we've seen, with um, especially after uh, Falcon Heavy launch, those two uh, boosters coming down to land, that uh, indicates to me that the technology is now mature for that kind of thing to happen. And in the coming years, uh, we will see not only billionaires going into space, which, uh, which is a very, very easy option for uh, getting the um, bragging rights that you've been to space, because even though it's been more than 60 years now since Yuri Gagarin, the number of people who've been in space is still well under 700. It's a tiny proportion. So if you want to be part of an exclusive club, don't climb Emer- Everest, go up to space.
1: Thinking on the subjects of uh, tourism, tourism, and another word that we have not yet brought up, but I think we should, uh, which is colonialism. Um, you know, mentioning <clears throat> mentioning all of these places uh, along the equator, uh, sometimes in tropical climes that were, uh, you know, colonies of, of, of European countries, and then the sort of second layer of that, which is the, the use of space launch technology and sighting as a sort of proxy for... You know, Soviet or you know, U.S. technology. There's just so many layers to to unravel there. But I guess the question is: is you know, do you do you feel that the uh, the presence of these space flight centers, these launch pads, in some of these uh, colonial spaces, um, are representative of a colonial effort? you know, in space and are we moving toward a new era of that that isn't so reliant on, you know, the location uh, in a colony on Earth, so to speak? Yeah.
2: I, I think there are two issues here. The first is displacement of indigenous populations and a certain amount of that has happened. One of our colleagues, uh, Asif Siddiqui in New York University, is a, will be publishing a book on this. But a problem is that in building some of these launch sites, the colonial powers didn't have a lot of regard for the people who lived there already. So it became a kind of dirty secret of some launch sites, the level of displacement that did happen. It's difficult to research, it's challenging uh, to research, um, but a certain amount of that has certainly happened and they have been some of the casualties and i would have thought avoidable casualties uh, of some of these these um, uh, launch sites i know for example there has been some controversy in kenya uh, that for all the european presence what did kenya ever get out of this and i think that's a legitimate question the second area though is environmental um, because just as rockets go up um, they come down again and it's only very recently that they've actually, as you, Greg just pointed out with SpaceX, actually been recovered. Uh, they used to be simply dropped into the sea or indeed onto land. And in particular, we know that this did enormous damage in Russia because they often used nitric acid as fuels, and that was very bad for the ground. Almost all countries have used nitric acid fuels, so they're not the only ones on this. But no effort was made uh, to uh, clean up, tidy up afterwards. Uh, So some of the downrange areas... Of cosmodromes like Baikonur, Plisetsk, and so on, are actually littered uh, with uh, rocket debris and spilt fuel. And there is what are called uh, politely the residuals uh, that weren't actually used up in the course of launchings. It wasn't until um, the 1990s, really, um, that uh, launch centres and their governments began to get a grip on this. Uh, And nowadays, when you see some launches from Russia, they also make sure you get photographs of the mill helicopters setting out into pursuit to see where did the wreckage land so that they can quickly retrieve it. Kazakhstan, we know, sued the Russian government for large sums of money for the damage that it did to uh, Kazakhstan. Territory, and it's difficult to say that they're not right in doing so. Um, but this remains a problem. We don't know how much damage fallen rocket stages have done uh, to uh, the oceans uh, beneath. Um, I, I suspect not a lot of good in some cases. So, this remains, I think, one of the downstream unfinished businesses that do need to be addressed around rocket launch sites. And I know Gurbe has some things to say about the Indian experience here.
3: Yeah, um, a bit like Cape Canaveral, Harigorta is a protected environment. So in addition to all the normal safety and rain checks that bef- that take place before a launch, there are strict controls on what kind of um, environmental um, damage that uh, a launch can, take, uh, can undertake. So one of the uh, interesting things about right now, uh, as, as I think you're probably aware, SpaceX is waiting to get the clearance from the FAA for its spaceship, which is a huge uh, rocket, very large structure. And in addition to all the other requirements, it is actually uh, um, quite a an old, uh, demanding uh, requirement for um, clearing all the um, environmental controls that the FAA have put on it. So the um, desire to ensure that we're coming through a phase where um, electric cars are replacing diesel and petrol in the coming years. With regards to increasing frequency of rocket launches, the same kind of concerns about pollution of the atmosphere from these increasing number of launches will also bring in, I'm sure, greater regulation, not just uh, in Europe and America, but I'm sure increasingly around the world because there are now... Many countries which, uh, as a result of the decreasing costs of launching satellites, uh, the number of launch sites uh, and uh, launch uh, countries that can now engage in this kind of activity is increasing as well.
0: Gentlemen, I have to ask, given the concerns you both just flagged here, your thoughts since SpaceX has come up several times on the proposed utopian town that SpaceX founder Elon Musk would like to build in Texas, where I've followed some of the controversies with his surrounding communities there over his expansion of operations. I'm curious your thoughts on his ambitions, or also just the will, the, the, the the wisdom of building urbanity next to launch sites in general. Um, any particular thoughts have you followed that story?
3: So I have not really followed that story, but it does go back to um, what Brian was saying about the communities that are impacted by uh, such... Because wherever you have a launch facility, it's a huge infrastructure. It's a, demanding, a demand on the local uh, environment is, is considerable. And you've got to have the buy-in from the local community, especially in places like America, whereas um, in places like... Um, Uh, Algeria or uh, Woomera in Australia. Um, Those were periods of uh, colonisation and the people there didn't have a say. I suspect um, Elon Musk will have uh, uh, a tough time getting the kind of consent he will require for something like that. So that's the practice of it. The idea, the principle... I'm sure you're aware that many um, experimental bases have been set up over the last two or three decades where there have been um, small uh, colonies of um, uh, habitats, really, habitats rather than colonies, of seeing what it's like to live in a closed environment, as if you were on on Mars, for example. Um, But that's quite small. What uh, this suggestion is making is something much more substantial. It's an interesting idea. I suspect he won't get the local buy-in from the politicians and the people. Although, you know, he's got a lot of money, so who knows?
2: The uh, test case here was Japan, um, because both their launch sites are not far from one another, at the very southern end of the Japanese archipelago. And as you know, the Japanese love fish. Uh, and there were many fishing fleets used to operate from that area, and the fishermen's union was very strong. And the fishermen's union managed to get um, a lot of restrictions put on uh, launching seasons. Uh, at one stage. Uh, Japanese, uh, the Japanese uh, space launch bases were limited to not more than 90 possible days a year, in which they could launch. Um, it wasn't a question that the rockets were frightening the fishes. It was really an issue that, the, uh, for safety reasons, they were not allowed. The fishermen were not allowed to have their boats in the downrange area, in case a rocket fell out of the sky and hit them. And that's. Uh, based on what happened last month that's a possible uh, that's a possible risk and a possible danger over the years negotiations took place uh, between the fishermen's union and the, the problem arose because if you want to send a spacecraft to the planets planetary alignments don't always coincide with fishing seasons um, so various things had to be negotiated here and there. Compensation was paid uh, for non-fishing days and so on. You would need to ask the fishermen, were they happy with the outcome? But it is interesting that in Japan, the idea of local economic interests as having a legitimate voice to control what went on in launch sites, that principle... Was accepted from the very beginning, maybe reluctantly by the government, um, but the fishermen's union were successful in negotiations over the years, and uh, in many cases, we've seen uh, pictures of the uh, fishermen cheering rockets as they fly aloft, uh, but that's because their buy in had been brought in. Uh, again, I would say go and talk to them now if they're happy about the current arrangements, but it is interesting there, as I said, that the principle was established from the beginning.
1: Thank you so much, both of you. Uh, th- I mean there is at least another podcast 's worth uh, of questions that have been opened up just, just listening to your responses here today. The, the idea of space ethics, space junk, space tourism, space colonialism. But I think it 's important that we do first recognize the effect that you know space travel has had on earth and continues to have um, so thank you for sharing that a uh, very uh, special part of uh, uh, geography with us uh, that I think a lot of people are probably not aware of. Um, so it's, it's Brian Harvey and Gurbir Singh, authors of the Atlas of Space rocket site, launch sites, and uh, this is Unfrozen. Thank you very much, gentlemen.